couple of things uh, before we get started. First of all, I love the band does such a great job keep making us more aware of God's never-changing presence. I don't say they lead us into God's presence because God's presence never changes, right? It's our awareness of it that changes. And uh, they do a good job of making us more aware of his presence. Uh, great songs today. A uh, couple other things. The Nightlife Center 10-year anniversary is at Covenant Life Presbyterian Church. It's 8490 McIntosh Road. Uh, for those of you that want to go to heaven, you'll be there Thursday. <laughs> That's just kidding. <clears throat> sort of kidding. I'm not kidding. You're going to be there. Um, also, uh, with permission, I uh, ask you as a church family to pray for Bob and Sally Arnett. Uh, they lost their son last Sunday night, uh, Stuart. Uh, the, the funeral was yesterday. And so be in prayer for them over the next uh, several months as they go through uh, the hardest thing that life can offer. Uh, so just be in prayer for Bob and Sally. They're a part of our Grace Life family and have been from almost the very beginning. Uh, and it's it's fitting that I mention that because today the sermon, I'm Joe Davis, by the way, one of the pastors here, and today the sermon is we should love one another. That's a quote taken from today's passage. And today's passage, John is talking about brotherly love. So before I get started with reading that, I want to tell you a story from my childhood. I remember that we would take these family vacations. There was my two sisters, my stepsister and my sister, my stepsister Molly and my sister Tammy, and then my mom and my dad, and we would go on these trips like from Tampa to North Carolina in a 1977 Honda Accord hatchback. <clears throat> you see where this is going already. So me and my two sisters are crowded in the back. Tammy was the smallest, so she was in the middle. I was on the right behind my mom because her seat was farther up than my dad's and my stepsister Molly, she was on the other side. And um, that was the trip. I remember those imaginary lines of death on the seats between us. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? This is the property line. Don't cross it. And, of course, it was crossed sometimes on purpose. Okay, most of the time on purpose. Sometimes on accident. Then there was the sudden, get off me. You know that one I'm talking about, right? And it was tough in that small car. And every once in a while, mom would yell back, stop fighting. Get along with your sisters. Get along with your brother. Stop fighting with each other. And sometimes dad would threaten to pull the car over. <laughs> One time he did. It was, between, it was between Augusta and Columbia, South Carolina. That was, and there was nobody around. That was frightening. I'm just telling you right now. But as we got older, whenever somebody messed with my sisters... Um, I instinctively would come there to defense. Uh, it was natural. I remember one time a bunch of people were kind of mocking me and bullying me in a group, and my sister Molly stood up big time for me, came to my defense. I remember at that moment that she loved me the most. I didn't remember any of our backseat property line of death incursions or anything like that. All I remembered was my sister had my back. See, we didn't have to think about it as brother and sister. We didn't have to do the math in our head. It was a natural choice, a gut decision, that even though we would cross the line of death on the back seat, if somebody messed with one of us other than us, we were going to take care of it. 
So let's read the passage today from John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers, his brother was able, his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. He uses that word a lot, that the world hates you. Don't, don't be shocked. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love lives or abides in death. Everyone who hates his brothers is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let's look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about the fake brothers. And remember what John is doing here in 1 John is he is not rebuking the people he's writing to. He's encouraging them. He says, I'm writing to you because I know you know Jesus. I'm writing to you because I know God abides in you. I'm writing to you because you have shown ample evidence that God has saved and transformed you. However, I'm also writing you to let you know that those who are coming from the outside, these Gnostic teachers that are teaching this fake false gospel, they do not have the same characteristics and qualities that you do. They are different. So what he's been doing is he is continuing the comparison between the Gnostics and those who know God, those who embrace the gospel of Jesus. So the first thought I want to talk about is this idea of spiritual fratricide. Fratricide means when you kill your own brother, kind of like what Cain did. The Gnostic teachers had disdain for Christians that embrace the apostolic gospel of Jesus. The Gnostics considered themselves the cool kids in the group. They were intellectually and spiritually superior, and the rest of these stupid Christians, even though the Gnostics called themselves Christians, the rest of these people are beneath us. The Gnostics claimed the family name of Christian, but they showed no love for those connected to the gospel. They did not treat the people of the gospel as family, but frankly, they treated them as rivals inside the church and outside of it. Interestingly enough, the Gnostics would never dream. They had their disagreements with Christians, mainly around the gospel, but they would never dream of sticking up for their brothers and sisters or defending them in the town square. When it came to the rest of the philosophical debates that would go on, they would never, and people would rip on the Christians that believed in Jesus. The Gnostics would say, hey, we're Christians too. Leave our brothers and sisters alone. No, they would never stand up for them. As a matter of fact, they found pleasure in joining in the scoffing, belittling them with the intellectual coffee shop crowd. Not only that, the Gnostics were stingy with their time. They were stingy with their talent. They were stingy with their money. Even when believers that they said they were like, you know, Christians, even when believers around them were suffering and hurting, in reality, they were, while saying brother, they were brothers, were acting like we don't want anything to do with our brothers. We are the real brothers. They are not. 
So that's the spiritual fratricide that is going on. The next thing I want to bring to you historically is that the world will hate you. He says that in the, in the passage. He compares how the Gnostics treated the Christians as Cain treated his brother Abel. That's not an accident, by the way, that he says, the way the Gnostics have been treating you is exactly the way Cain treated Abel, who was his actual brother, but he really wasn't his brother. Cain was like his spiritual father, the devil, John says. And his father, his spiritual father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. In John 8, 44, Jesus talks about that. And what we see happening here is what John is saying is, all that, they, all that Cain was doing was doing what their dad did. It was in their spiritual DNA. This is what they did. And what he's saying is the Gnostics are the same as Cain. Their father is of the evil one, and they're going to act like him. Don't be surprised that they hate you. Just like Cain loved the world around him more than he loved Abel, when it was clear that Abel had a different value system than Cain, when it was clear that Abel had a connection with God that Cain did not have, Cain grew to hate him. And he says, all of those who abide in Christ are subject to that same kind of hatred of the father of darkness. Society around them had disdain for them in no small part due to the egged-on slander that the Gnostics had spread. This group of Christians that embraced the gospel were looked down upon by everyone, and the Gnostics were really the kernel of where it would begin. Think about it. People who called themselves Christians fomenting hate against those who really embraced Christ. John had already made it clear that these false teachers were part of that world. They were not part of God's family. He even said earlier, this is why some of them have left. And I know it broke your heart, but had they, had they, the fact that they left shows they were never really part of you anyway. Because you'll never leave. But they have. He says, don't be surprised that they feel this way about you. It's not your fault, Christians. You haven't done anything wrong. They are just going along the same path that their father, the devil, has gone. Then he goes the next step. He says, but listen to me. Here's what I'm encouraging you with. Talk is cheap. And he lays out the difference between the Gnostics and the Christians. How the Gnostics treated Christians and how Christians treated other Christians. See, let me tell you, the Gnostics were masters of wise words. Soaring rhetoric. Eloquent speech. Sounding good. And they spoke, frankly, of love all the time. It's about love. It's about love. Love this, love that, love, 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 love. All the good words. But John exposes the fallacy of love based on words. Amen. Using Christ's example, he says it is so much more than words. It was money. It was hands. It was feet. It was sacrifice. It was time. The Gnostics would never even dream of giving up their cloak for somebody who didn't have clothes. They would never dream of giving up their car. They would never dream of opening up a food pantry, let alone live or die for someone else. But these true believers who had stuck together loved one another relentlessly, 
even when it wasn't easy. Frankly, often all they had was each other. Understand the historical context of persecution here. The full-on persecution of Christians has not started yet, but it is starting to build steam, and they're beginning to become the scourge of society, and people are saying, the problem with our community is these Christians. And so what began to happen is they began to become ostracized more and more in the town square. It became harder for them to make a living. It became harder for them to relate to people that weren't part of the church. They were looked down upon, and sometimes all they had was each other, and it was not easy. It is so easy to love you guys on Sunday morning. You, most of you have just showered. You don't smell so bad. You come in with a smile because you know we got really good donuts and bagels, although some, some of you selfishly ate all the plain bagels before I got to it, but that's okay. But they were demonstrating love when it was hard. So much love that they had demonstrated that John points out the fact that some of you have been willing to lay down your life for each other. That's what love is. So let's talk about the spiritual side. What about God and what does he do in this passage and why does he do it? I want to talk about real brothers. So normally what I try to do in the devotional or the spiritual part, the theological part, is I want to break it down for you and tell you what God does and give you three points, right? I mean, that's kind of what I like to do. But today, as I was finishing this up, I thought, you know what? I'm going to delete everything I have on the, on the spiritual part, the theological part, and I'm just going to read some verses to you. Because we're talking about loving one another. Here's the first one. The Gospel of John, verses 13 uh, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. This is Jesus talking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, and how did he love us with his life? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, what kind of love? The kind that he had. Okay, that's pretty good, right? John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater, again, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Different verses, same book, same concept, right? This is a pretty high bar. This is the love that you should have for one another, that you give each other a hug on Sunday. This is the love that when somebody's annoying you, you just say, okay, I'll pray for you just to shut them up. This is the kind of love that you have. I don't want to get my hands dirty in your struggles, but I'll give the church 50 bucks to give to you. How's that? That's not the standard he's setting here, is it? It's far greater than that. Frankly, it's a standard, if you haven't figured it out already, that's a little bit intimidating. Here's another verse. Colossians, Paul writes this one, verses, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And above all else, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul says, I've given you a lot of instructions, but the most important was that you love. And, and how are you supposed to love? The peace of Christ, the example of Christ. You were called to one body. Here's another one in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this one, chapter 13, verse 13. The famous quote-unquote love chapter. So now faith, hope, and love abides, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I don't care about your religion. 
I don't care about your perfect attendance, although you, it's required, you need to be here. <laughs> but what he's saying is the most important thing you can do is love one another. By the way, you can't love one another if you're not around. Amen. You can't say you love someone if you're not around to show them and tell them. Then there's another one, John 15, 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus says, look, I'm telling you all these things for this reason. I want you to love one another even as I have loved you. This is the level of commitment that God is requiring of us when we love one another. Here's another one. I have 17 more. No, just kidding. This is the last one. <laughs> Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing. This is Paul. By the way, this, is, this was one of the first sermons we preached here at Grace Life. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important or significant than yourselves. See, you can't love one another if you think, well, I'm going to love you because you need me to. No, I'm going to love you because I need you in my life. I'm going to love you because you are more important to me to this church than I am. Think of others as more important than yourselves. See, <clears throat> through God's word, I think it's pretty clear the expectation is set that something miraculous happens when God gives us the gift of faith. When God saves us, church, we cannot help but have a deep love for the others that he saves. You cannot pretend to know God and not be in total love with his people. What begins to happen is this, whether you like it or not, our deep relationships will gravitate more towards children of God than children of the world. doesn't mean we don't have deep relationship with people outside of God's church. We will and we should. But what we begin to happen is the ones that are the most meaningful are those whom God has called to faith just like us. Those are the ones that have the biggest impact on our lives. We will demote or even forsake old relationships for them if necessary. If we are forced to choose between relationships of the world and relationships with God's people, by nature, we as children of God will pick God's people every time. Every time. Well, I do like you Christian people because we're Christians, but I'm going to hang out with my old friends instead each week. Our commitment and love for one another will become unrelenting. It will be our behavior, it will be our choices, and it will be fueled by a supernatural transformation that comes from the gift of faith. The same faith that we sung about in that last song, no wall you won't tear up, no lie you won't destroy to come after me and save me because that's how much you love me. That type of love is what will begin to permeate and then exude out of us toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There is nothing we won't do to love and be with those whom God has called out of darkness into light. So let's talk about the devotional side of this, the personal side. What about us and what are we supposed to do? I want to talk about loving God's people. Here is the, uh, the social media campaign we had this week. Loving the people in your church isn't always easy, but it's always required. 
It is. So how do we do that? What does it look like? What should we aspire our love for one another to be? You say, Joe, I'm willing, I'm willing to love one another, but I have no idea. What does it look like? What are the qualities? What are the characteristics? I'm going to give you some ideas, as you probably have guessed by now. The first one is we have unrelenting commitment. Love for God's people isn't always convenient. As a matter of fact, it's rarely convenient. It isn't always cost-effective. Right? But the fact is, if we have the gift of faith, our unrelenting commitment will be there. There's no barrier or boundary that will keep us. Look, I love God's people, but that's too much. It's too early. It's too late. Too often. Too far away. It's not about hating your brothers and sisters. It goes much farther than just not hating them. You understand that, right? It goes much farther than that. Indifference, frankly, to God's people. Listen to me. Indifference to God's people is just as troubling a sign as hating them. You hear me? Indifference saying, well, you have to take them or leave them. The Spirit of God will never allow you to take us or leave us. The I am so over them moment will never happen between Christians. Oh, it might happen for a second. But if the spirit of God abides and dwells in you, it will bring you back around quickly. Not fighting isn't the standard. It's love. Getting along isn't what is glorified in these passages. It's sacrifice. So there's unrelenting commitment to loving one another. Another thing, there's unrelenting presence. Whether it be worship times, small groups, hanging out, serving, helping, whatever the case may be, there should be a desire to be with God's people on a regular basis. Don't say you love us and then never be around. You're lying. If you come to church just for worship then you're not really coming to church. See, you can belong to a church, but if you are indifferent to others in it, then you aren't really a child of God. Then you aren't really part of the church, you're just in the church. You see the difference? You must come to church for the church, not the organization or the institution. It's the organism that you're here for. And you will make sure that your life makes a priority out of being with God's people. You can't say you love us if you're never with us. I understand things happen in life and things take place and you're not able to. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about passion. See, passion drives your behavior and decisions, does it not? It drives what your priorities are. And one of them is you're going to want to be around people you love. And then there's one more. There's unrelenting sacrifice. Big ones and small ones. A church's love for each other should be shown by how much they sacrifice. If you feel, listen carefully, if you feel that your church fails because of what it is not providing you, you missed the whole point. 
well, I like that church, but I don't get this. Well, I like it, but they don't have that. If your thought is, the church should help me, then you don't get it. At that point, you're not in love with the church. You're in love with yourself. The continual question by a child of God who loves God people should be this. What can I provide for them? How can I help? What can I give? If people are always saying, I don't like that church because this is not there and I want this and I need this. Instead, the question should be, what do they need from me? I love them so much. I'll do whatever it takes. Here I am, God. Tell me what to do. We must love God's people and be willing to give up our lives if necessary. Now, look, many of us will never be in the situation where we have to sacrifice our physical life for one another. But understand, laying down your life devotionally isn't necessarily dying for one another. Although it could come to that one day, we don't know. What it means for us today here, listen carefully, is that you are willing to live for one another. So guys, this kind of love is a supernatural thing. It's a discipline and a behavior that only God's chosen people can accomplish. If we are God's children, then we will love all our brothers and sisters just as God loves them. Look, we will at times fail, and there are times where we even feel hate for one another. Hard as it may seem to believe, some of you might hate me, or even this morning you might. I don't know. That will happen. But because the Spirit of God abides in us, we will not continue in that hate, but instead we will say, the worst thing I want to do is be someone who hates my brother, and we run to God for repentance and restoration and cleansing. So I have a quote that I'm going to put up for you from uh, uh, this guy, uh, Francis Chan. He's pretty good. He's all right. He's all right. He says, do you know that nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it's about loving God and his people? Did you know that? Nothing you do in his life, no matter how much money you make, no matter how famous you get, no matter how successful you are, none of it will matter unless somehow you parlay it into loving God and his people. We will love them when they're in pain. We will love them when they are comfortable. We will love them when they're annoying. We will love them when they are encouraging. We'll love them when they're rich, but we will also love them just as much when they're poor. We will love them when they make us smile. When they, we will love them when they make us roll our eyes. We will love them when they're happy. We will love them when they're sad and grieving. We'll love them when they're broken. We'll love them when they're winning. We'll love them when they're losing. We'll love them when it's convenient. And we'll love them when we are very busy. This is what the love of God's people looks like. And here's the good news. If God has saved you, this is your natural direction. This is what it should be like for you. 
And there will be this constant tug in you between what you love in the world and what you should love. And if there's not a healthy tension that you're struggling with, then that's the problem. I'm not saying we won't struggle. We will. But there should at least be a struggle. If you're indifferent, there is no love and probably no spiritual life. Because John says, this is how we know that God lives in us, that we love one another even so much that we would lay down our life and live for them. Dad, we uh, recognize that true love is very unhuman. It's very easy to love when it's convenient or beneficial. But none of that is evidence of what you did for us on the cross. Father, we ask that you would drive us to each other's arms, you would drive us to sacrificial love, you would drive us to relentless presence, relentless commitment. We ask that you would create the love we have for one another to begin to look like the love you had for us, even to the cross. Because greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends.